Let us hear then God's word from 2 Samuel chapter 1 and beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was, when he came to David, he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? And the young man who told him said, As they happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword." Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. <clears throat> well, as we begin 2 Samuel here now, let's uh, first refresh our memory a little bit regarding the end of 1 Samuel. So let's turn back a few pages, and uh, in particular, as you see chapter 27, you recall that uh, 1 Samuel ended with David living in Philistia. You recall that David grew tired of running from Saul, and even though God protected him, it was rather anxious and unnerving and so on and so forth, and, and so David basically ceased trusting God and took matters into his own hands. He went to Gath, and he settled in Ziklag as friends of the Philistines, at least so it seemed. David was fighting. He was fighting common enemies of Israel and Philistia in the south, endearing him to both peoples. And then we see King Achish, you recall, king of Gath. And uh, he was so deceived by David that he wanted David to fight with the Philistines against Saul and Israel. But as they were gathering together, <clears throat> the other Philistine kings did not trust David and sent him back to Ziklag. And we see that in chapter 29. 
Now, in the meantime, as David was gathering with them, the Amalekites came and raided Ziklag and the other towns in southern Judah, uh, as well as Philistia. And uh, the Amalekites took the families of David and his men and burned the city. We see that in chapter 30. David then pursues them further to the south and eventually defeats the Amalekites and rescues his families and much more from even the other towns that had been attacked by the Amalekites. All right, now, as for Saul, you recall that uh, the Philistines had gradually taken more and more of, of Israel over the years, and that's because God was punishing Saul for his sins. Um, and so the Philistines, in this case, had gathered at Mount Gilboa as a severe threat to Saul and to Israel. And we see that in chapter 28. And Saul was so afraid, you remember, he went to a medium, not to ask God, but to ask a dead Samuel what to do. And Samuel rebukes Saul and tells him of his imminent death later in the day. And so we see later in the day, this next full day, that Saul and Jonathan and many Israelites are killed there on Mount Gilboa. And we see that in chapter 31. But you recall, David is way to the south fighting against the Amalekites, at least 100 miles to the south, maybe 150, depending on exactly where he went. Now, we see in this final chapter, Saul is struck by an arrow and is near to death. And fearing that the Philistines would mistreat him, uh, fell on his sword in order to die quickly. Then the word comes to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and they rise up and travel through the night. And uh, recall, they are the extended family of Saul. And so they come and take his body, and they bury him with honor and stop the Philistines from dishonoring the king and his family. All right, so here's a little bit about um, what we ended with in 1 Samuel. And, of course, you recall that First and Second Samuel were originally one book, so this division that we have is not uh, what the author was thinking about. And so we come to the next part of the story. And so chronologically now, we're at 1010 B.C., give or take a year probably, um, and so Saul had ruled from 1050 to 1010, and now David from 1010 to 970. All right, now, <clears throat> verse 1. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. All right, we're pausing right in mid-sentence here. And uh, so there, uh, David is two days in Ziklag after this battle with the Amalekites. Uh, if you turn uh, back to 1 Samuel again, this time chapter 30, and, it, and look specifically at verse 26, it says here, When David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Here is a present of the spoil of the enemies of the Lord, and so forth. And so David's doing this. And he's returned to Ziklag. He probably got some rest and so on, but he is uh, sending out the spoils. And remember, He's basically returning the things that were stolen from these other places. Now, he is also likely rebuilding Ziklag. It had been burned with fire, and so he likely, along with his men, were tearing down uh, half-burnt structures and burning them the rest of the way or something to that effect, and then rebuilding other things. 
Okay? In so doing, I think we have to assume that David was assuming Saul was still alive. He had no uh, knowledge yet of Saul's death. And so he is acting as if he is still alive. He is running from Saul. He's living in Philistia. He's going to rebuild his life there in Ziklag and so on. Let's also look then at 1 Samuel 31. And specifically, uh, let's look at verses 8 and following. And 1 Samuel 31, verse 8. So it happened the next day. Right, so Saul is killed. This is now the next day after his death. When the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bashan. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. All right, so <clears throat> this is also then taking place during these two days in Ziklag. David is in Ziklag doing his thing, um, and Saul then is discovered. He is uh, uh, beheaded. His head starts uh, heading around. Philistia, and he is impaled there on the wall at Bashan, and the men of Jabesh Kilian come and rescue him. So all these things are happening then in these couple days. Now here's where I'd like for you to uh, look at a map here a moment. Again, uh, use the, the one that I've passed out to you before here. And uh, in particular, uh, if you look at the kingdom of David and Solomon's side of it, uh, if you look more or less right in the middle of the map and a bit to the west, you'll see Mount Gilboa and Beth Shawn just to the west of the Jordan River. If you have another map, um, it's just south and a bit west of the Sea of Kinnereth, or as we know better, the Sea of Galilee in the New Testament. And so here's where um, the battle took place and Saul is uh, impaled. On the other side of the map, if you rediscover where those places are, where Beth Shon is, you see Jabesh Gilead then, right, just to the east side of the Jordan River. And so they go all night to get him and such. And then if you go south and to the west, um, all the way near to the bottom, you see Beersheba, Ziklag, okay, in Simeon in the 12 tribes map. Or you see it uh, there between Gaza and Beersheba on the other side. Okay. So uh, here's the, the locations of where these things had taken place. The point is simply, David is nowhere near Saul. Not anywhere close. Even today, uh, with our uh, ability to transport ourselves in a, in a very short period of time in comparison, okay, 100 miles roughly, is uh, a long way away, okay? and so he is nowhere near. Now, let me pause and, and refresh our memory also in this way and some of the things that I mentioned in 1 Samuel. In the second half of the book, and now here these opening chapters of 2 Samuel, one of the key themes, one of the key points here is that the author is defending David. He wants us to see that David's the good guy and Saul was the bad guy. Or in this case, in uh, 2 Samuel, some other people are the bad guy, not David. 
And uh, you may recall I made um, some comments to this effect and such, and and so let me say uh, some of this again. You recall that in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, this is when David kills Goliath. And everybody loves David. We see that over the next couple chapters. Everybody is excited. David is successful. He is leading people into battle. He is winning. The Philistines are dying, and, and everything's great. David is a war hero. Well, Saul gets jealous, and everything turns. Now, it is certainly true to say that the soldiers of Saul were simply doing what they were told. And so when Saul said, we need to track down David, that David is the bad guy, they they did what they were told. But I think that's a bit simplistic. Because you recall that when David, or excuse me, when Saul said, you can't eat anything until we win the battle, and Jonathan went and ate honey, you remember that the soldiers defended Jonathan. And they stood up to Saul, because Saul was doing wrongly in that scenario. Now, it's possible that the text doesn't record the same kind of thing with uh, the soldiers and Saul and David. But I think it's at least part of the reason why they were intent on tracking down David because Saul said so. It was not merely because Saul is the king and they're doing what they're told, but Saul was spinning the story about David. Okay? And so on CNN the Canaanite news network, they were spinning all kinds of stories about David. Okay, let me pause right here at the beginning. Why would the author go over this point over and over and over and over again? We've seen it several times already in 1 Samuel. We're going to see it several more times here in 2 Samuel. If there wasn't this bad word about David spreading around Israel, he wouldn't have to do this, but he does it repeatedly. And so I think this uh, leads us to the conclusion, even though the text doesn't come right out and say it, uh, that Saul was spinning the story, propaganda against David. There was a mugshot of David in the Saul times. The Gibeah Gazette was talking about Philistine collusion. Because remember, David's living in Philistia. He has sided with the Philistines. And the Philistines just killed Saul. Hey, is David part of this? You know, I mean, you can just imagine what had been going on with the people in Israel and how Ishbosheth would use some of these things to justify people more or less voting for him, so to speak, to be king in the northern portions of Israel, at least initially. And so we'll see more of that uh, into the next chapters. But, but this idea of, of um, Saul and his cohorts saying evil things about David, I, I, I just think we have to come to that conclusion based on the amount of times we see uh, the author defending David. And he's doing it right away here in 2 Samuel. This first verse is saying it. David was two days in Ziklag. He had just defeated the Amalekites. He's all the way down there. He's uh, spreading the spoil to these other people. He wasn't anywhere near Saul. All right, now he has more to say about this issue, as we will see, uh, even tonight. So let's come now to verse 2. On the third day, 
Behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. All right, so the third day now. So we had the two days, now it's the next day, obviously. Um, and Saul's head is traveling somewhere in Philistia, and the Philistines are rejoicing over these things. And so now this man comes from Saul's camp uh, to David, and note he is coming in mourning, and he's coming in honor. Uh, you'll see that his clothes are torn, and there is dust on his head. Clearly, this is a message of bad news. Okay. <clears throat> And the connection here is pretty obvious, right? When we die, we return to the dust. And so the mourners would put dust on their heads to mourn the death of the loved one. And so they're identifying with the dead, you might say. So he is grieving. He is filled with sorrow. And notice that he honors David. He bows down before David. Um, Seems like he is presuming that uh, David is going to be the next king. He travels these two to three days uh, to David. It's at minimum 80 miles from Mount Gilboa to Ziklag, and depending on which way he went, which probably was not through Philistia, or at least Philistine-controlled territory, uh, he comes to David, so maybe he travels up to 100 miles or something like that. Notice there's no indication that he went to Gibeah, Saul's hometown. Uh, There's no indication that he seeks out Saul's family. Um, now, the text doesn't say, I suppose it's possible, but I think the implication is that he doesn't. Uh, but other people brought news uh, regarding Saul to his hometown. Um, but this man comes to David to bring the news. So then, verse 3, David said to him, where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And so David here, obviously, asks questions. He wants to know what's going on. He sees this man dressed in mourning clothes and so on, and so he wants to know what's happened. Now, some commentators have uh, tried to make the case that because David is in Philistia, at least at the beginning, he doesn't know. Is this bad news for the Philistines or bad news for the Israelites? And I suppose that's a possibility, Um, It does say the man comes from Saul's camp, and presumably there's different colorings or or something about Israelite armor compared to Philistine armor, and so that may have given it away. But whatever the case, uh, David knows something's wrong, and he wants to know what it is, and clearly the man answers and says that this is bad news for Israel. I've escaped from the camp of Israel. So then verse 4 Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. And so David is pressing now for more information. He he, um, hears this bad news about Israel. He wants to know what happened. And, And in fact, the the words here in this verse are actually commands. And the New King James says, please tell me, which is fine. That's an appropriate translation. But recognize David's commanding this man twice. We don't see that in verse 3, and we do see it here. So he's pressing for information. And now the man tells David what we already know. And notice how he builds here. Many have fled. 
And then he says, there are many dead. And then he gets, if you will, to the punchline, Saul and Jonathan are dead. Now this is big news. And so understandably, then verse 5, David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? I mean, obviously you don't just say these things. How do you know? How would this man know? Again, uh, they didn't have cell phones and and, uh, instant messaging and this kind of thing at the time. So how does he know? There are times in battle where you don't know the story for for days, possibly even weeks. Um, Now, they had runners and information, but if they were all killed, sometimes the information doesn't happen right away. And even today, sometimes it's delayed. So David wants to verify this most shocking news. And it's quite understandable. Now, some commentators begin to say David is already doubting this man's story. And that may be true. So let's now hear this man's story. Verse 6. Then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on a spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. All right, so he starts by saying he is on Mount Gilboa, and by chance he is near Saul. Um, uh, It's um, not likely that um, he is just passing through. It's likely not what he means, right? Everybody is at war in this area, and uh, he's not out for a Sunday stroll. He didn't take a wrong turn on Gilboa Highway. He's presumably part of the army. He says he is from the camp. It says even back in verse 2, from Saul's camp with his clothes. So presumably he's dressed like an Israelite soldier. And he says he's escaped there, verse 3. And so it, it sounds like what he's trying to say is we were in the battle and I wasn't necessarily stationed by Saul, but I happened to end up near Saul. And of course, in the middle of battle, all kinds of things can happen. And uh, so it wasn't planned. Um, so this, this is the message he's communicating. Now, let me already raise then for us some questions. Um, if you look at verse 8, and then also later uh, down uh, in verse 13... Uh, He says that he is an Amalekite, and depending on who you read or listen to or whatever, some people say, well, that is proof that this man is lying. There is no way at all that an Amalekite would be a soldier in Israel. Well, okay, I can understand the sentiment. Uh, That certainly is a possibility, and maybe he is making up the whole story. Other people say, well, you know, Saul didn't necessarily keep the law very well. And, of course, remember, he was supposed to kill the Amalekites, and he doesn't, uh, not completely. David is just fighting against the Amalekites and so on. And so I suppose it's possible that an Amalekite could end up in Saul's army. Um, I lean toward the position of this man lying. Uh, I'm not sure it's easily cut and dried like some try to make it. Uh, But more likely is that he was a looter. And so he happened to be on Mount Gobo because he was going through the dead soldiers' things to try to find valuables. He was looking for, uh, for these things, and he came across Saul. 
That probably was not intended, uh, but in God's providence, that's what happens. The man, though, of course, makes it sound like he was in the battle. And so if this is true, how does it fit with 1 Samuel 31? So let me address one point now. We'll look at some more here in a moment. Um, if he says here in this verse, verse 6, about the horsemen and the chariots following hard. So let's come back to chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. And uh, this does fit with verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Malchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. So at least this part of the story seems to fit with what we've uh, seen already. Okay. Uh, even uh, with charioteers, typically, especially if there were two Soldiers in the chariot, one would be driving and the other would be shooting a bow and arrow. Even horsemen uh, would uh, oftentimes ride as archers. And, and so this fits um, the idea of the fierceness and the hardness of it all. Uh, again, all that fits together. But as we look back here at 2 Samuel 1, uh, the man says that Saul was leaning on his spear. Well, how does that fit? Um, let me first say this. Saul certainly would have had a spear, right? We've seen Saul with a spear several times in 1 Samuel, and usually it's getting thrown at David or somebody. Uh, so Saul having the spear, that would make sense. But everybody would know that, right? So let's look now at verse 7 back here in 2 Samuel 1. <clears throat> now when he looked behind him, meaning Saul looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, here I am. And so here now the man is saying, right, Saul sees him. Again, he's assuming he's a soldier based on this uh, um, uh, part of his story. And they're in the middle of battle. So then verse 8, he said to me, who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Now, maybe an odd question to ask in the middle of war. Um, certainly Saul would not know all the soldiers in his army. Uh, by name or by face, uh, okay. Uh, but again, notice the man says he's an Amalekite, and that immediately raises all kinds of things in our minds, going all the way back to Exodus after they came out of Egypt and on their way to Mount Sinai. So then verse 9, it says, uh, He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. Now we see the man is communicating that Saul wants him to kill him. And he is saying, basically, I'm about to die. And uh, we see that truth, certainly, in 1 Samuel 31. And, um, and that's what the man is saying here, too. This word for anguish, as the New King James says it, my Bible has a footnote saying agony. Your translation may use a different word here. It's a challenging word to know exactly how to translate uh, but it does seem that the idea is simply Saul is wounded to death. He hasn't died yet, but he's going to. There's no recovering from this wound from the arrow. And so Saul wants this man to kill him uh, completely. So then, verse 10, So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and had brought them here to my Lord. 
So the man says, <coughs> excuse me, simply, I've obeyed the king. I did what he asked me to do. Saul's not going to live, and so, right, put me out of my misery, he's saying, and prevent the Philistines from abusing me. And so here's this man, at least saying, that he did the right thing. He did what the king told him to do. Now notice how the verse ends. Very important detail. It says that he brought the crown that Saul would have been wearing and this bracelet, which is, was actually an armband. They'd wear up higher in the arm and such. Uh, this, um, uh, these things were brought to David. All right. Obviously, this indicates that this man had seen Saul. Hey, you don't just buy these on the internet. Right? This is a clear indication that this man was with Saul in order to get these items. All right, now, let's turn back to 1 Samuel again, chapter 31. And notice some of the differences in the story. At least in verses 2 and 3, that fits. But as we continue into verse 4 now, it says, Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. So at least in concept, it's the same idea there. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on a sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. Obviously, you see a difference, right? This man says he's an Amalekite. He doesn't say anything about the, being the armor-bearer of Saul. If he's trying to convince David who he is, you'd think he would have mentioned that point. Um, but the text here says the armor-bearer dies. Now, we do know that 1 Samuel 31 is somewhat general, because it says all his men died together there in verse 6. Well, we know that isn't every last person. We're going to see that here in 2 Samuel. And so maybe this man is giving some bits of information that 1 Samuel 31 does not. Um, all right. I, I think, though, we have enough information here, and certainly I'm not the only one, that would say this man's story doesn't line up completely. There is a lot of suspicion here. Um, so, again, I, it would lean with the, those who would say that this man invents this story. It is more likely that he was a thief, not a soldier. And as he is picking through the things, he comes and stumbles upon Saul, and he takes the crown and the armband, and then probably at that point <clears throat> thinks, you know, <clears throat> if I find David, he's going to reward me. He's going to bless me. And who knows? Maybe this man had heard about David and the Amalekites. I don't know. Maybe he's just trying to save his own skin. Uh, but again, likely uh, this is our understand should be our understanding. And, and so therefore the man probably then took somebody's armor or clothes of some sort, put them on, made himself look like a soldier. Um, now, some have tried to make the case that even after Saul fell on his sword, he didn't completely die, at least not right away. He would have, but it hadn't happened yet. And so he, uh, his armor bearer doesn't do it, his own sword doesn't do it, and so he asked somebody else. 
okay, possibly, uh, after being shot, after being stabbed, I'm not sure you're going to be leaning on your spear, but I, I suppose it's possible. Um, and so again, you have some difference of opinion here in this way. I would agree with uh, Dr. Davis, for example, among others, that we should see 1 Samuel 31 as the true account. And then when we come to 2 Samuel 1 and hear this story, the story from this man, we're like, well, wait a second, there's something fishy going on here. Okay. So let me come back then to what I started with in verse 1. One of the primary goals of the author. Again, possibly it was Nathan, possibly it was Gad. We don't know for sure who authors this portion of the book. But he is wanting everyone to know that David is innocent. I mean, think about this. This is even worse than having classified documents in your garage. Right? I mean, if you have the crown of the king in your possession, if you have the armband of the king in your possession, what is the obvious conclusion? David was part of Saul's death somehow. Right? Even if David wasn't there, right, he could have sent some mercenary to go kill Saul in battle to make it look like the Philistines did it. I mean, he's friends with the Philistines. I mean, you can imagine Philistine collusion, right? You know, CNN would be uh, really playing up this story. There would be investigations, the Senate committee, and on and on and on to try to impeach him and so on. The author is saying to us, again, right here at the beginning of this section, David didn't do it. Had nothing to do with David. He wasn't there, and this is how he got these items. Okay? So you need to have a major correction story in the Saul Times and not on page 23. You know, this must be the top story. David did not get these items because he had planned to kill Saul. They, if you will, kind of showed up, so to speak. Okay. This is how he got these items. He does not know this man, and so forth. And so David is innocent. David is the king that we want over us. As I mentioned again several times as we were looking at First Samuel, <clears throat> that um, I'm inclined to think that at least as we get into these early chapters of 2 Samuel, that this portion of 1 and 2 Samuel was completed, and it was being used as justification for encouraging everybody to want David to be king. And not just king in Hebron, but king over all Israel. And so if you have Ishbosheth and others spreading this idea, well, you know, David had the crown of the king, I mean, what's going on here? He must have been part of my dad's death. What the author is saying, no, he had nothing to do with it. Now he's going to go on to say, David does not rejoice over the news of Saul's death. And he doesn't reward this man for the news, nor for killing Saul. And we'll look at those ideas next week. So, again, we don't have a clear sentence or verse that says, hey, Hey, you know, let's, let's uh, make sure the story about David is accurate here. Uh, but clearly that's what the man is doing, the author is doing. So let's 
step back here just a moment and talk about the broader principle. Do you see how the author here is defending David? He is defending the innocent. And in particular, he's defending a man from, can you say, propaganda, fake news, the things that Saul must have been saying about David to convince people to go kill him. And so Gad or Nathan or whoever it was is very deliberate in this way. David is not the evil man. Saul is. Saul's claims about David are wrong. David was a man of integrity. We want him as king. Now, since we're talking about the two heads of Israel, Saul and David, let's think about the heads of our country. And yes, I know we have divided government and all that, but typically, of course, we think of presidents. So you, know, you go back over the last few, and uh, you think of Clinton and transitioning to George W. Bush, and then George W. Bush transitioning to Obama. Okay? A lot of bad things were said from one toward the other, but you know when it was all said and done, they, they shook hands, and they still get together on occasion and, and uh, laugh it up and, and so on and so forth, right? But when the transition happened from Obama to Trump, that did not happen at all. In fact, the exact opposite happened. Okay? All kinds of things were said about Trump. Now, I've said before, look, I am not a person that thinks Trump can do no wrong. By no means am I in that position. But anyone with a small amount of discernment can see that he has been attacked mercilessly since he announced in, what was it, 2015 or whatever. And he has been attacked not because he's a big buffoon in a bull in a china closet, as we say. And yes, he does stick his foot in his mouth quite a bit. Um, but the reason why they attack him is because he's against the establishment. He's against the globalists. And when they say he's going to destroy democracy, well, that's true. Because we don't want a democracy. We want a constitutional republic. Founding fathers didn't want a democracy. Okay, and, and, and Trump is definitely on the conservative end, at least in some ways. There are other things he's not very consistent. But anyway, Trump makes it easy to uh, attack him with his personal attacks and his egocentric boasting. But <clears throat> the CNN of our day, the Rus Russia collusion, the January 6th, the Ukrainian phone call, all these things are ways that the establishment are trying to smear Trump. The evidence is very plain if you just take time to look at it. Um, and so as the author is defending David, yes, okay, Trump's not David, but it's okay for us to defend an innocent man on these things too. Now, if he broke the law of the classified documents, fine, punish him. But then do the same thing for the Bidens and Clintons and Obamas and so on and so forth. You might say that the Amalekite is kind of like this January 6th investigative committee, James Comey, Steele dossier, and the Clinton campaign, and so on and so forth. They're just a bunch of liars. Now again, my point is not to be political. My point is to give you a, a corresponding example in our day of defending those who are innocent, at least of the things they've been accused of doing. 
And so back to our point here. David is not anywhere near Saul. And David received Saul's crown and armband from likely a thief, but certainly somebody else. David had no part in it. And so we want this man as our king. So we will continue these thoughts then into the next section next time and see David's response to this information. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you again for your word and we thank you for this account of David and this man and these events surrounding Saul's death and what followed. We are thankful, Lord, that you desire truth and in all ways that uh, you are on the side of truth and you will uphold truth and opposed to lies um, and so lord as as nathan or gad or whoever it was ultimately your holy spirit is encouraging us to stand up for what is true and uh, to encourage people to follow the the right person uh, we pray that that would be something that we would do as well. Whether we're talking about presidential elections or we're talking about our local school school board uh, chairman or uh, something to that effect, Um, these things uh, certainly are on other levels, not just the very top, so to speak. And we pray, Lord, that you would then give us strength to to, uh, discern truth and to uphold it and stand for it even when it may be uh, hard to do so. And so, Lord, we uh, are thankful, ultimately, that David is not our hope, just like Trump or any other man is not our hope, but that you are, and that you are our king, and you are the one that uh, leads your people. And so, Lord, we thank you for this. And um, so we pray all these things, then, in Jesus' name.